This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Julia Magana and Sarah Medeiros. The Leaky Pipeline. Recently, I made the conscious decision of wearing a white coat routinely on my ED attending shifts. Yesterday, I still got called baby numerous times by my older male patient. Thanks, baby, I heard. His girlfriend commented, how come you get the cute doctors? Had I had a female resident or any staff being treated that way, I would have paused and told the patient those words are not acceptable. Since it was just directed at me, I honestly didn't know how to proceed and in that moment couldn't care more. Was my silence and laughing it off in the moment condoning the behavior, making it worse for other future female colleagues? Or just simply defeat and self-preservation at realizing I cannot change an older adult that should have learned to respect women as a child? Or both? I thought, what is the point of engaging in confrontation? Shortly, he will receive a hospital survey asking him about his satisfaction with the ED visit. I don't think I've worked in places where physician satisfaction, rights, and comfort is placed as a top priority. As a younger, short, five-foot-one Asian-American female physician, this is not the first time I have dealt with disrespect. As the, quote, model minority, I'm seen as non-confrontational and harmless. People sometimes seem stunned if I'm suddenly serious, assertive, or visibly upset. What will it take for me to receive the same respect I strive to give to others? The same respect my non-minority, non-female colleagues tend to receive more easily. Will it be when I get more gray hair? Do I need to be less friendly? Do I need to be less kind? Do I need to lower the tone of my voice more? Do I need to just talk business and not create a human connection with the individual in front of me? Do I need to be more blunt, less passive, more serious, directly confront and stop behavior like this in a professional manner, and then still deal with the consequences of being seen as a, quote, bitch, and receiving poor patient satisfaction survey responses. These days, I wear a white coat, as cheesy as it sounds, the symbol of integrity, professionalism, and commitment to our patients. To follow the footsteps of my senior female EM mentors I had in residency who always wore one. At the same time, to protect myself from some patients who may not see me as their physician without it. And sometimes, hospital staff too, unfortunately. And to keep me warm in the darn cold hospital. Welcome back to EM Pulse. That was a poignant tweet shared by at CDI Chang and illustrates part two of our Women in EM podcast series. Part one, called My Role as Doctor, included multiple experiences shared by women in EM across the U.S. The episode really was a new format for us, and we hope that these stories broadened your own understanding of gender equity in emergency medicine. A particularly interesting piece to me was the medical student perspectives. I think they have a better sense of the issue than I did at that stage. I mean, they do teach me new perspectives all the time like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. You know, when I was in medical school, I didn't think too much about gender equity. My medical school class started off more women than men back in 2003. And sadly, by the time we graduated from medical school, that ratio had shifted back to a predominance of men. And fast forward now to being an associate professor, that ratio is now even worse. Right. And that's why they call the progressive loss of women in these positions from entering medical school to leadership the leaky pipeline. Right. That is a great description. And today we dive into the heart of gender equity in emergency medicine with our own local expert, 
Dr. Angela Jarman. She is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and our department's director of sex and gender. Tell me, Angela, how did you get so interested in sex and gender? So I actually grew up in North Carolina, so uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, so a very liberal, sort of highly educated pocket. But I grew up in a very sort of traditional family. My mom stayed home with my siblings and I when we were young. And then I ended up going to Duke for undergraduate. And there was this fateful moment in spring of my sophomore year where I had an extra slot in my schedule. And I signed up for an elective and it was called Gender and Everyday Life. And it was essentially the introductory class to gender studies And I remember sitting in class that spring and just my brain sort of exploding. I had never thought about the role gender played in anybody's life, much less my life. And that's kind of where it all started. I then ended up changing my major, even though I was pre-med. And I have to share one small anecdote because at the time I was planning to be a veterinarian. I was going to be a large animal veterinarian. I was a pretty serious equestrian back in the day. And I had my heart set on that. I was pre-vet. So I was taking all the pre-medical courses. And then unfortunately, actually, my dad got sick junior and senior year in college. My dad had a brain tumor and he actually was operated on at Duke and he was very sick and he was in the ICU. And so we were all up there, you know, for weeks, really. And I remember spending so much time in the unit and thinking to myself how bad some of the physicians were at communicating with my family and I and my grandmother, my my father's mother made a comment to my mom, which I heard one day when we were in the waiting room. She said, you know, Angela seems really comfortable here. Maybe she should consider being a nurse. Mm. And I have to tell you, my mom, bless her heart, she immediately said, well, I think that Angela would probably consider being the doctor. But that was one of those moments. It was an earth shattering moment for me because I thought, you know, why not? Like, I could be a doctor. I am smart. I'm working hard. And I'm definitely better at communication than some of the people, you know, that we've encountered and thus began the rest of my life, really. After that, I I went to medical school, continued to care about women in medicine. I went to residency and then I elected to do a two-year fellowship actually in sex and gender in emergency medicine, which is focused more on sex as a sort of a biological variable and impacts on acute presentations of disease. But this has always sort of been my passion and pet project to think about bias and how it affects women in medicine. That's a great segue. And let's get into the landscape of women in emergency medicine. Where were we, say, 25 years ago? I'm going to start actually throwing it back even farther than that. So every year we have a Women Physicians Day, and everybody loves to talk about Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first female physician. She was a physician in the mid-1800s, but that really doesn't tell the whole story. So I want to kind of point out that it wasn't really until the last couple of generations that women became doctors. If you looked at the AAMC numbers for matriculants to medical school in 1970, it was only 10% women. So that's pretty dramatic. By the end of the 70s, it was closer to mid-20s, upper 20s. But really, this is a new thing that we are equally represented in medical education. So I went to medical school actually at the University of Kentucky, and I was in med school in the, let's see, 2009 to 2013. Now, I remember looking at the data then, and it turns out that women have been equally, approximately equally represented in UME, undergraduate medical education, since 2003. So that's pretty impressive when you think that women have been 47, 48, 49, now 52% of medical students when we step back and look at the larger picture. So 
I want to add one other point, which is that women actually earn the majority of undergraduate medical degrees right now. And that's been true for a number of years as well. It's actually like 57, 58% women if we're looking at undergraduates. And even if you just look at STEM fields, women are still equally represented. So that's kind of the background. But if we look at where we're at now, women in emergency medicine are only about 30%. You know, if we take kind of all comers, residents, senior women as well, women are in the 30s. So that is not great. (laughs) Not bad compared to like, orthopedics, I would guess. That's that's exactly right. So a a lot of this data that I'm referring to, most of what I have said so far all comes from the AAMC, American Association of Medical Colleges. So they graph every year, you know, where the specialties are in terms of gender representation. One of the worst or the most disproportionate is orthopedics. Orthopedics is like 94-6 in favor of men. In contrast, the other end of the spectrum is often pediatrics and both OB, which tend to be closer to 60-40. So um, emergency medicine is slightly worse than average in terms of the the gender representation, but we are absolutely not the worst. (laughs) Why do you see some of these differences in emergency medicine? That's a a great question. And let me go back a little bit because I have to share also that when I was preparing for this podcast, I read some articles that were published in the early 2000s about this as the representation of women was increasing. And the thought at that time was, oh, this is just a problem that's going to fix itself, right? The fact that we have more women graduating from undergraduate degrees and matriculating to medical school in one generation, this problem is going to be gone. Like that was the going theory at that time. And now fast forward essentially one generation later, and we see that we have not made nearly as much progress as we wanted to make. So being a a researcher or a budding researcher, I kind of think of it in, in terms of quantitative and qualitative. So we knew there was a quantitative problem. We don't have enough women, right? Women are underrepresented in emergency medicine compared to undergraduate medical education. But it's clear, given the amount of time that has passed, that we also have a qualitative problem. So being matriculating or becoming a doctor, even becoming an emergency doctor, is not enough. There's something different about the experience that women have as physicians that's different than the experience that men have. And that results or has resulted in both attrition and failure to advance. If we look at the representation of women in emergency medicine, they're very disproportionately represented in the lower ranks. And by that, I mean instructor and assistant professor. So those are the only ranks where women are over or equally represented. If you start going to associate professor, full professor, and particularly leadership positions, women are really underrepresented there. Chairs are a great example. There are a handful of female chairs of departments of emergency medicine in the country, but there are only 11% of the entire chairs. So that's pretty bad. So we've been trying to kind of understand what that's about. It's pretty clear that we're losing women and we tend to lose them both at the transition from assistant to associate and from associate to full professor. And we actually have good evidence that they're less likely to be promoted. So you can imagine that people would be more likely to leave medicine if they're not advancing and not reaching the ranks of leadership. That is a great example of the proverbial leaky pipeline. You get numbers in at the beginning and then you lose them as you advance towards leadership positions. Where are some other differences? I assume there's a pay gap. Is there a pay gap? 
There is, in fact. There's a lot of evidence out there, even recent evidence, that there is a persistent pay gap for women physicians and specifically for women emergency physicians. So that's a hot topic that we talk about every you know year, really. There have been a number of studies that are well-controlled, you know, that control for years of experience, practice setting, publications, all of the things that could go into your packet. And we still see that women are underpaid relative to men. A theory for one of those holes in the leaky pipeline is about self-perception. What is the impact of the way we perceive our roles and confidence? This is another great place where I think understanding almost the anthropology of, of gendered expectation is super helpful. So there's a great book written by two journalists called The Confidence Gap that kind of encapsulates a lot of the evidence on this topic. But it starts in very early childhood. And if you think even about elementary school and pretty much through all of the school years, girls outperform boys. So girls are socialized to be very driven by rules and to do the right thing and to complete all of their assignments. Boys are tolerated to not exactly conform in the same way. So the theory is that that sort of translates to professional life where women just assume that if they work hard and do the right thing, they will be rewarded for that. In school, it worked, right? We got a lot of A's and that felt really good. But unfortunately, that creates sort of this myth of meritocracy. And that's not exactly the way that the, the real world works. The person that gets promoted is the vocal person who advocates for themselves and gets FaceTime with leadership lots of times. So how that plays out in the medical world is that there is a gap in confidence among our residents. And systematically, there are some great studies on this, where if you ask women and men residents to evaluate their performance, men systematically over-evaluate their performance. So they think they did better than they did. Women either underestimate or very accurately assess their performance. So I think that's something else really important to keep in mind when we're thinking about evaluating residents and thinking about how to provide effective, actionable, valuable feedback for them. Is there a difference in the community setting versus in the academic setting? So I will say that's a hard question for me to answer because I spent I would say one year in the community during my fellowship, um, but the rest of my time has been in academics. And it's hard to answer that question from a data-driven perspective because there's just less publications that come out of those settings. But in general, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today that makes the experience different for women, I don't think is specific to the practice setting. A lot of it has to do with our culture and gendered behavior. And certainly there may be differences with the pay structure in the community but I actually think that we can probably extrapolate a lot of this data to different practice settings. How has the pandemic impacted women in emergency medicine compared to men? Well, I would reframe that question and say, how has the pandemic affected women differently? Because there's evidence from all specialties and actually even outside of medicine, all professions that COVID has affected women differently. And I think this is something really important for us to talk about. There was actually a fantastic Harvard Business Review article about the number of women that have been lost from the workforce in the last two years. So one of the major causes of that is childcare. I don't know about you, but childcare has been a bit of a challenge um, when schools <laughs> are constantly closed for COVID or when you're doing remote learning with multiple children in the home. So caregiving responsibilities is probably the biggest uh, contributor to that. 
So if we look at caregiving responsibilities by gender, we know that women shoulder more of the burden of childcare, also just more of the burden of, I would say, dependent care in general. So that can mean aging, ailing parents or other dependent family members. But women also do a significantly higher burden of the household tasks. So even housekeeping, cleaning, stuff like that. So there's clearly been an unfair burden placed on women in terms of domestic demands that has trickled over into work. And we have seen that manifest in academic medicine as women having fewer publications during the COVID pandemic. And we've also seen it in terms of attrition. And that is something that affects our country, our economy. It's not just specific to emergency medicine, but certainly we're not immune to it. I think that gets to the why. Those barriers that impacted women during the pandemic probably are reasons or translate over for the gap in promotions and leadership in general. What are some other reasons for the leaky pipeline? Well, I think we can't underestimate the impact of bias. So that includes both explicit and implicit bias. But those are huge drivers of this. <laughs> um, and, you know, we could do a whole podcast on that, really, because there's so much great data coming out about the role of bias in medicine in general, in terms of patient care as well. But I would say that's a huge driver. And, you know, bias takes many forms. But I will say, I think that gendered patterns of behavior and implicit bias probably are magnified in emergency medicine compared to some specialties. So, for example, when we think about traditional masculine behavior and traditional feminine behavior, so in our culture, I should add that, you know, gendered expectations are time, depend on the time and the culture, right? But historically in our culture, men were dominant and they were loud and they were decisive and they were seen as leaders and does that sound like a good ER doc? Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> of those characteristics that line up. And I want to point to there's there's an idea or a theory or sort of a framework of thinking about this called the goodness of fit model that comes out of the psychology literature. Professor Madeline Hellman at NYU has studied this a great deal. But when we think about goodness of fit, the idea is do the characteristics of your job and what's required of you at work fit with traditional gendered behavior? So I like to always talk about code leadership, right? So what does it take to be a good code leader? You have to speak in a loud, clear voice. You have to have not a lot of emotions, right? You have to give clear and direct communication. And you have to be seen as a leader. There are studies out there where everyone agrees on what the characteristics are of a good code leader. And do those map to traditionally masculine or feminine behaviors? Very clearly masculine, right? So, so for us to do our job and to do our job well, it actually requires us to suspend gendered expectations of what it means to be a good woman, right? Women are expected to be communal. We're supposed to engage everyone. We want to communicate empathically and get everyone on the same page. But, you know, we don't have time to do that when lives are at stake. And that's our job. So all of that is to say that there's somewhat of a double bind that affects women emergency physicians because we're making life and death decisions. We don't have time to necessarily be sure that we say whatever we say in a way that's soft enough to not hurt anyone's feelings or be, you know, interpreted as brusque. 
because we will be punished for that, right? That That is a deviation from the way that women are supposed to be. Women are supposed to be communal. They are supposed to be nice. They're supposed to smile at you. They're supposed to go get you a blanket. And if they don't do those things, then we're very quick to vilify them. And and you've all heard, heard probably the analogy that, you know, if a woman and man can do the exact same thing and a woman will be called the B word, right? Or some kind of slur, and the man will be called a good leader. So there is clearly a difference in the expectations by gender. And that makes it hard for us, harder for us. You know, I do a lot more work to sort of counteract that in my life on the floor in the ED than I think my male partners do. You know, I'm an excellent code leader and I will lead the code with agentic traits, but then I'm going to say, sorry guys, that was really intense. Really good job. You know, I'm going to do something to counteract the fact that I raised my voice or told people what to do. I didn't ask them. I didn't say, please. I didn't say, thank you. I said, do it now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. It is. And I also want to add that there are some really cool studies out there about this now, because I think one thing that's hard if you're a woman, well, this is two points. This is what's so important about women in medicine, women physician groups, right? Because you can share stories and everyone knows what you're talking about and no one gaslights you or tells you that your experience wasn't real, right? We have all experienced these things. But there's also a ton of people that are working on sort of legitimizing this research and studying bias. And it's very clear, you know, there's one study that we can link in the show notes um, where they actually did a scripted scenario that was a resuscitation, but literally had a script written out that included like body language, gestures, et cetera, and had a man run it and had a woman run it and ask people to evaluate their leadership skills. And I'll let you just guess what happened, right? (laughs) So the interpretation was totally dependent on someone's gender and men were ranked higher in like all of the domains. I think there were six different domains. Two of them were clinically significant, but they were ranked higher in all of them. And so we have to sort of recognize that women are being put at a disadvantage because of that. Evaluations are a part of career advancement. How does gender bias play into evaluations? The going thought now is essentially that this bias is sort of just baked into evaluations and we see it. But there was a great study, I believe it was published in JAMA, where the authors looked at the milestone evaluation. So this is specific to emergency medicine residents. And the results are incredibly compelling. They found that at matriculation to residency interns, women and men were ranked equally effectively. Women were actually ranked a tiny bit higher, but then fast forward three years to the end of their residency and men were systematically ranked higher than women. So they were ranked so much higher that it equated to several months of residency training. Wow. Isn't that incredible? And so you have to think, what is that? You know, is that bias? Is that real? The going thought, I would say, is certainly that that's bias. And one of the reasons for that theory is that they did a follow-up study where they looked at the qualitative comments, right? So they looked at what comments were you giving women compared to men. And among women residents, there was so much disparate feedback. So the same woman, there's one great example in the paper. There's a woman at the same point in time, she receives three evaluations from three different attendings. And one tells her she's not confident enough. One tells her she's appropriately confident. And one tells her she's overconfident. And How in the world do you interpret that feedback, right? So we think that there's a lot of gendered interpretation of behavior going on there. But just to be the devil's advocate, I would also add that if 
by some chance that was real, that the women residents weren't performing as well as as the men, which I don't believe to be true, then we've totally failed them as educators, right? Like part half of my job is to teach doctors how to be doctors. And if I'm not doing that, then I have failed and we need to rethink our entire educational paradigm. Okay, we've established there's a problem. <laughs> but how, as a specialty, how can emergency medicine change the issue of gender bias? Is there anything that we can do? Yeah, that's such a hard question because there's a lot of answers, right? And it, it depends on exactly what we're talking about. I think one of the first steps, though, if we'll continue with the thread of bias and implicit bias, when I give talks about implicit bias, I always start by sharing that despite my clearly raging feminism, if I take if I take <laughs> the quiz, right, I'm not that raging, but, but some days I am. If I take the IAT, which is an implicit association test, I have a strong connection between being a man and having a science career. So I have a bias in which I associate women with like being teachers and men with being doctors. That blows my mind every time, okay? Because like like we've talked about, I pretty much have dedicated my career to understanding this and studying this. But the point is just that we all have bias. That's how implicit bias works, is that we don't realize that we have it. You know, if we did, then we wouldn't be biased. And, and this doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't make anybody a bad person. It makes them a product of their sociocultural environment. And the ways that we socialize women and men are different from the very beginning, you know, from preschool even. So that's the first thing I say to people. In order to to interrupt bias, we have to understand that it is there and that's where we can make some changes. So one of the easy things with evaluations that we talk about, particularly on the faculty level, is if we know that the evaluations are biased, then to de-emphasize them, right? Or to focus on maybe qualitative feedback, not just to take these numbers, and particularly when you're getting evaluations from all different directions, all of that information has to be taken with a grain of salt. I think that's a really interesting strategy to find out where the gap is and rethink how we are actually doing this. What about on the individual level? What can I do as a woman physician to advocate for myself and for my women colleagues? Great question. So I think we can think of the interventions as sort of structural, institutional, big picture things, and then interpersonal uh, things that you and I can do. So I think one of the most important things is having a network, right? So we talk about mentorship, we talk about sponsorship, which are not the same thing. And lately, coaching has kind of come onto the scene. So I think if you're a woman EP or a woman physician of any kind, having a mentorship team, you can kind of think of it as your board of directors is critically important, right? You know, I, one of the reasons that I have been successful is that I have these women who are my sponsors. So they'll say, you know, I was asked to be the guest editor of this special edition of the journal. I'd like for you to co-edit it with me. That's an incredible opportunity. I'm not qualified to do that on my own. But then one of my mentors kind of takes the lead, walks me through it. Because how do you learn how to do those things? You learn by doing, right? Having trusted mentors that you can talk to when something happens that can help you think about how to interpret it and how to act on it is really important. 
And I would also put in a plug, we've sort of alluded to there's lots of organizations these days for women physicians, and particularly for women emergency physicians. I know that exists in PEM and is very active. It exists in general EM as well. AWEM, which is an academy within SAEM, is very active. So there are many places, even if you are not in an institution that has a lot of women or that has doesn't have a lot of support, there are places for you to get support. You're just going to have to seek them out because it's clear that we have to be really intentional about this and, and think about our advancement. And I think having a network of women, some of whom are, are senior to you, can help you think strategically about your career and about how to be successful. Absolutely. I mean, there's Facebook groups, professional societies, there's conferences, lots of resources on this particular topic. And on the local level, I love that our emergency department has a strong group of women and that we boost each other in various very enjoyable ways. I totally agree with that. And I just have to add that empowered women empower women, right? And so there's so much support out there. You just have to ally yourself with the right people and I also am just going to plant a question here. I think another really important way for us to interrupt this or to work toward achieving parity for women is to increase women in leadership. So what we talk about all the time these days is representation matters, representation matters, representation matters, right? If you say we value gender diversity, we value any kind of diversity, we, we value diversity of opinions, diversity of experience, then we should see that in the makeup of your department. And there's also good evidence, not just from medicine, but from the business world that diverse teams perform better. And particularly if we're thinking about women chairs, for example, women chairs tend to have more women on their faculty. And women get this, right? They live it. It's, it's their everyday experience. So I think Finding ways to encourage and support and be really systematic about developing women leaders is going to be one of the most crucial ways for us to achieve parity by gender in our specialty. Okay, this is embarrassing, but as a potential leader in my department, I have shied away from some leadership opportunities because of the constriction that they would put on my own life as a parent of school-aged children. Oh, does this make me a bad woman in emergency medicine, a bad ally, a bad example? Your comment suggests to me that being present in your family and being a leader are mutually exclusive. And that's the wrong paradigm, right? That is probably the way that it used to be. But we have to rethink, fundamentally rethink what it means to be an academic physician and what it means to be a physician leader. It does not mean that you have to be on your email at 5 a.m. and at 11 p.m. because I work for eight hours a day and I guarantee you I'm going to spend, when I get home, I am not touching my computer until my baby goes to bed because I want to spend every moment with him. That does not make me less of a leader and it doesn't make me less of a doctor. So I think this requires a fundamental shift in our way of thinking and our and our values. If we value child rearing, which is a part of a functioning society, then we need to create more flexibility. And that's one of the things that has been discussed a lot in light of COVID is flexible job arrangements, you know, both for women and for men, um, because we all have families, we all have needs outside of work. And those needs fulfill us, right? Th those interests, those hobbies, our families, those are important and they shouldn't have to be sacrificed to be excellent or to be viewed as a leader. 
I love that. And this goes back to this is a bigger picture issue. We need to seal up that leaky pipeline. Right. We need to be flexible and we need to support people because when you're inflexible and you don't give people options, they quit. And and we know very clearly from the data that that affects women more. And we also know that there's great value to having the women in our system. We know that they're excellent doctors and they're excellent leaders and they bring a great deal of value. So, you know, if we want that expertise to stay in our departments and in our institutions, we have to evolve. Okay, let's look at our colleagues who identify as male. What can they do to be a good ally? Great. This podcast is for everyone. This issue is for everyone, right? This is not a women's issue. We're talking about women, but this affects everybody because we are a team. So the answer to that question, I would still put in the framework of sort of structural or institutional interventions versus interpersonal. So if you're a man in the leadership, then think about the things we've talked about, how to be really thoughtful about developing women leaders, right? Do you need to institute a formal mentorship program, a writing group, structured mentorship around promotion, right? So that women are only saying yes to the things that are both passionate to them and going to help them get promoted. If they're super busy doing things that the APT committee doesn't care about, then that's not going to help them, right? So I think if you're in a position of leadership and have some power, then devoting some energy and engaging with the shareholders, engaging with the women in your departments about what would help them be successful and what would help develop them as leaders is really important. The interpersonal piece is important as well. So if we're talking about implicit bias, take an IAT if you're a man, take it and just see what happens. Think about your interactions at work. If you're a man working with emergency physicians, I think talking to them, trying to understand ways in which you can be supportive when it comes to things like salary. I think transparency is one of the most critical things that will help us work toward parity. So if you're a man, kind of sharing the details of your package can be really helpful to a junior woman. And by that, I don't just mean your salary. You know, we're at a public institution. You can look up our salaries. That's well known. But there's a lot more that comes with a new physician job, including resources like office space, staff support, research monies, and probably most importantly, buy down, right? I think historically, a lot of wheeling and dealing happened behind closed doors that was not transparent. And that's how informal power is perpetuated, right? Where the person in power sort of has a bias toward their friends and those people sort of get the golden ticket, whereas everyone else doesn't really sort of know how to get ahead because it's not clearly published. So that's one thing that's really important, both in clinical care and I would argue in achieving equality um, and equity, I should say, across the institution is transparency. I don't know about you, but if I walk in the room with a male medical student or resident, most of the time the family assumes that I'm the nurse and talks to the male doctor, even though I have a huge sign attached to myself that says doctor, and I introduce myself as doctor, I still find that they look to the male physician, the male colleague in the room. What can another doctor do to stop these microaggressions? Well, this happens 
eight times a day. You're right. And and it's so interesting. And again, this is a great example of how implicit bias functions in a culture, right? Because we walk into the room and we have these huge badges on that say doctor. We say, hello, I am Dr. Jarman. It also says MD on my scrubs. Sometimes you even wear a white coat and patients and family members will still think that you're the nurse or some allied staff member that's not the doctor. So that happens very frequently. The The best thing to do is to interrupt it right there at the point of care. So I love when the male resident in the room, you know, will say, oh, actually, this is Dr. Jarman. She's my boss. People understand that. Or if they're only making contact with the man in the room and not me, even though I'm sort of clearly the person that's at, at the leader of the team, that resident can say, oh, you know, let me introduce you. Well, Dr. Jarman's in charge. You know, there are a lot of little phrases that you can use that essentially take the power that has been anointed upon them by the patient's implicit bias and give it to me or give it to the correct person. And that's so powerful because it's much more powerful for an ally or the person in a position of power to do that than for me to try to fight and take it. You know, it, it goes over better. So I think for all male allies, that's important. And this is important in the academic arena too. Imagine you're in a meeting with a group of people and you say, you make a comment, right? And nobody really responds. And then two minutes later, you know, a man says it and everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's a really great idea. So, so we like to emphasize, you know, and, and give credit to the person that said it. So if you and I are in the meeting and that happened, then I would say, yeah, I really like Dr. Magana's point, you know, and men can do that too. So that's really, uh, all these little things are, are important to sort of recognize the role of women and give them back the power that has been in some way taken away by our cultural expectations and values. Okay, you mentioned Dr. Magana. So I am a pretty casual Californian in general, and I have been okay with going by Julia with nurses and other doctors. But recently, I have become enlightened on how I'm hurting myself and other colleagues by doing that. How can we support each other with terms and how can we refer how can we support each other better with these terms and referring to each other? Yeah, this one is so important. And it's a microaggression that happens all the time. So if you're informal and you go by Julia in certain settings, that's fine, right? If everybody is going by first name. What happens, unfortunately, though, and there is great data about this, many, many papers, is that we tend to refer to women physicians by first name and male physicians by their title, by doctor. I was in a meeting the other day where this was happening. So this is just perpetuating the idea that like you don't look like a doctor and you're not an authority figure. And in professional settings, that's really harmful to women because again, they're not seen as the expert when probably they are the expert. So that's something that's really important to point out to your male colleagues or if you're a male colleague to note if that is happening. And it's it's always a little bit uncomfortable, of course, but the way I usually do it is just say, hey, I don't know if you noticed, but you called me Angela. And you called the older white guy, Dr. X, you know, and lots of times you'll get some kind of excuse. Oh, I, you know, I just he's so senior. I've known him so long. I just, you know, I'm just more comfortable with you. No, <laughs> right. Untitling women is bias and it hurts them and you shouldn't do it. And that goes for men and for women. What are some things we can do to support our women colleagues who are child rearing and engaging in activities such as, say, pumping? 
Well, that's a big one. And I would refer everybody to a recent SGEM podcast that Dr. Milne did where they talk about the role of lactation and how important that is. So these are all areas in which we need policies that help women. It can't be a one-off, right? You can't have to be the woman that needs to pump and feel like you're asking for special favors from your colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, working nights is the same thing. Like a lot of people these days are going to having a policy where in the third trimester, in the last month, whatever it is, that women don't work nights because otherwise, you know, there there is physiologic harm associated with that. That's a that's a data driven recommendation from OB. But if you're that woman, you feel awkward and you feel like you're asking for special treatment, which is goes against sort of the idea that you know I can do anything a man can do. So those are areas where I think we do need structural and institutional policies that need to come down from the top. So if you're a woman and you don't have a policy at your shop. Get together with some other people, women and men, work with leadership, maybe put together a, a work group and draft a protocol, something that will support the women um, in your department. Because, again, we can't succeed if we don't value child rearing and feeding our children because that's that's a part of life. But I think I think we want the onus not to be on one person. And the other point I would just make is that chairs are busy, right? Chairs are overwhelmed. They are always feeling the heat, you know, budget. It sounds like really, really hard job. I totally get that. So if you can come to people with solutions rather than problems, which I'm not always great about doing that. I know that. Sorry to our medical directors because I, I know I bring I know I bring <laughs> you problems. But in general, if you can bring solutions or bring an offer of helping to put together a policy, like imagine how that would go if you said, hey, I'd like to put together a group and we're going to draft a policy that then our group can vote on to support lactating women. They're not going to say no to that or they're less likely to say no to that than if you said, hi, here's this huge problem. Could you please solve it in addition to keeping the C-suite happy and also keeping our revenue up and lowering our left without being seen and getting everyone promoted on time, right? That's a big job. There's also, I just want to refer to in, in 2020, ASAP put out it's not really a clinical policy, but a statement about overcoming barriers to promotion for both women and URM. So there is stuff out there that you should and can refer to and bring to leadership um, if you need to, because you're not alone on an island. And we know that equity equals better care and a happier workforce. So this is something that everybody should get on board with. Pulse check. Gender bias exists, and the first step to recovery is to admit we have a problem. Identify where the leaky pipeline is in your institution, in your department, or in your life, and then work with others to patch that leak. We can do this through intentional policies, sponsorship, mentorship, and coaching. Representation matters. When you identify gender bias in your world, look for solutions and create policies that will interrupt that bias. We hope this podcast gets you thinking about how your own gender plays into your role as a physician, colleague, and leader. This may resonate with you, and it may not. Either way, we hope that you can use this as a jumping-off point in your own journey of growth. And one way to continue this conversation is to share this episode with a colleague and start a conversation with them. Thank you to our department for striving towards gender parity with a faculty that is 50% women. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for your ongoing support. But wait, there's more. This is part two of a four-part series. 
Stay tuned for part three on gender equity and pay and advancement. See y'all next time.